0: Hi, this is Paula Gloria with New Realities TV. On this show, we explore the limits and the potentials of human consciousness. Maybe we can say the unlimitedness. Today we have a really special guest, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who's the founder of a process called Nonviolent Communication. And I think as we talk to, uh, to Marshall Rosenberg, we'll hear that indeed what we thought was limited in human ability to communicate, to share, and to understand, is, I feel, with his method, really unlimited. So thank you, Marshall, for joining us.
1: I'm very glad to.
0: H- how did you develop this process of nonviolent communication?
1: Well, I started it by some questions that had been in me, deep in me, since I've been very young. Uh, my family moved to Detroit, Michigan just in time for the race riots of 1943. uh, Thirty-some people were killed in our neighborhood in four days. We were locked in the house during that time. And this was a powerful learning experience for me as a young boy, that this is a world in which people may want to harm you for no reason other than your skin color. Shortly after I went to school, I found out that not only my Skin color could be a stimulus for violence, but my name could be a stimulus for violence. So that's really what got me started in this work, just that consciousness that this is a world where people can want to hurt others for such reasons. And that developed in me a deep interest as a boy. Why is this so? What what happens to human beings that makes them so violent in regards to such things? And I was fortunate to see that, of course, not everybody is this way. I saw people who were just the opposite, very compassionate, very loving. So I had in my consciousness as a boy growing up to learn about this. Why do some people uh, respond compassionately to others, and why are others so violent? So those questions got me started. I studied clinical psychology, hoping that this would give me some insights into this. But what I saw in clinical psychology was really a perpetuation of the violence because it was based on looking at people who behave in ways we don't like as though there's something wrong with them, as though they're mentally ill. And at that time, I was starting to see that this was part of the problem, this kind of labeling of people, this kind of dehumanization that comes through our language in which we think in terms of wrongness. So uh, I then started to study people who were really living in the way that I valued to try to see what contributed to their being able to stay compassionate even in the face of violence around them. Can you give examples of some of those people? Well, in my book, I mentioned uh, one of them. I was very fortunate as a young boy to, uh, have an uncle who came to our house each evening. Uh, My grandmother was totally paralyzed and was on a bed in the dining room. And each evening he would come home from his hard work. He worked eight hours. Then he would come over to our house and help my mother take care of my grandmother. And the whole time he was taking care of her, he had the most wonderful smile on his face. Well, whereas in the streets I was seeing the smile on the people's faces who were beating me because I was Jewish, and the observers watching it and enjoying it, I saw that kind of smile, and then I came into my house and I saw the smile on the face of my uncle as he was taking care of my grandmother. And of course I saw many such examples of people like my uncle, that no matter what's going on around them, they got more pleasure out of contributing to people's well-being and getting caught up in the violence.
0: Some people would say you create your reality, so in a certain way the fact that you were able to draw into your life more better examples than worse examples it might have uh, shaped your direction because you're certainly not a wimp you don't avoid conflict or or helping people who are not the benevolent smilers so to speak you see the good in others
1: i like your concept that we create our reality but we gotta and i'm sure you're aware that this can often be heard in a way that implies we're blaming the victim for their conditions.
0: Uh, oh, I agree with
1: you. So, uh, yes, to a large degree how we look at things and how we behave creates our reality, but of course we need to be conscious that to a large degree gangs create our reality. Some gangs call themselves gangs, some gangs call themselves multinational corporations, some gangs call themselves governments. And these gangs create a lot of our reality.
0: But you're not a, you're not afraid of these gangs. You use nonviolent communication to reach in and make your life more beautiful as a result of that reaching in.
1: Yes, one of our, one of the aspects of our training is not only to train people to be more compassionate to themselves and to be able to connect with others in a compassionate way but to transform whatever structures are making it difficult to relate in a compassionate way. To transform the structures, the gangs as I'm calling them. Transform them so they support people contributing to one another's well-being rather than people competing with each other or dominating each other.
0: Well, many experts who have analyzed the whole multinational corporate structure Uh, you know, wind up giving data that's that's very discouraging. It's not like any one person's trying to hurt things, but like there's a momentum of the machinery that's set up that's not helping people get the most of what they can with the planetary resources.
1: If you see those structures and, and what power they have and how many people support them, it certainly can be scary. But if you're as fortunate as I am to work in many countries with uh, people who are banning banning together and getting things done in transforming these structures, it's very encouraging, especially in the last few years as more and more people become conscious of how these gangs function and what we can do when we get together to transform them. It's very encouraging.
0: So you help these groups of people to communicate better. And also, can you give an example of how they can communicate with the corporations using your methods?
1: Well, first of all, uh, to get the access to the people who maintain the corporations is a very big step. Uh, So our training shows people how to use our training to get access to the people we need to communicate with. Uh, Almost all of us know someone who knows someone who can get us in touch with the people we need to communicate with. So, But we need to communicate with these people. We need to communicate clearly what our life-serving vision is. We intend no destruction of corporations or structures. We want to transform them so that they serve life rather than, whether wittingly or unwittingly, oppress people. So our training can be shown in how you get this access to people in power positions. Part of our training shows once you have this precious time that they give you, how to make the best use of it, how not to get enemy images in the way so that they think that we are attacking them or accusing them. We want to use that precious time to really find a way to get their needs met and our needs met. Um, Another thing, to get that done often requires a team effort. It's not that easy for one person to go through all of the access getting that's necessary, all of the communication that's necessary. So what we need to do is also use nonviolent communication to organize a support team of people working together but after we organize them most of the political teams that we see organize they spend as much of their energy fighting within as putting energy outward to transform the structures so we show them how nonviolent communication can be used to get our own group to deal with its conflicts in a way that all of our energy doesn't get burned out within But we have energy left to now go and transform the structures.
0: I I would imagine that some of these powerful individuals, probably mostly men, who are running the corporations, some percentage of them do become interested from their side in your work and probably ask you to, to bring this knowledge into their business.
1: Well, we're working within many businesses showing them how to look first at their vision. Is it really a life-serving vision or not? Or is it uh, mainly basically making profit for a few stockholders? If so, everybody pays for it in that structure. So uh, we try to then help people see how to transform their vision to be a truly life-serving one. And yes, they're very interested in our training. Once they see that we don't have them locked into enemy images and that we are not there wanting them to do anything except look for other ways of getting their needs met that need ours as well.
0: Right. So you, you,
1: right, I was just going to,
0: right, right. Can you explain a little bit what nonviolent communication is or the non, because you mentioned in our, even in our words, even in our language, it can be alienating and we can view others blaming them, judging them, and not allowing the goodness to come forth.
1: What nonviolent communication is, is really a synthesis, not only of communication, but of intentionality, consciousness about how we choose to live. So nonviolent communication begins with getting people clear of this consciousness, uh, a life-serving consciousness that we call it. And then we show them language that we think language and communication that we see serving life serving consciousness and now the process itself the language and communication is remarkably simple almost everybody who studies it says two things about it: how simple it is the next thing they say how difficult it is now now what makes it simple (laughs) is that it basically suggests that we keep our consciousness at all times on two things. What's alive in us? And what would make life more wonderful? See, what's alive in us? What's alive in others? What would make life more wonderful for us? What would make life more wonderful? Well, that's simple. However, what makes it complicated, we haven't been taught to think and communicate in terms of what's alive in us. We have been taught to think in terms of moralistic judgments. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's normal? Who's abnormal? So when you have been educated for about 10,000 years, as we have, to think and communicate in moralistic judgments, which incidentally, um, all of the basic religions have warned us for centuries, do not use moralistic judgments. The Christian tradition says it very clearly. Judge not others, lest ye be judged. Right. But we hear that, but we have been trained from the time we've been infants to think in terms of moralistic judgments. Our parents and teachers use moralistic judgments with us. That's a good girl, that's a bad boy, that's, that's a very smart thing you did, that's a stupid thing you did. So having been trained so thoroughly for so long in moralistic judgments, it's very difficult for people to do what our training shows how to do, which is stay conscious moment by moment, what's alive in us, and what would make life more wonderful. Now, the what's alive in us basically focuses on human needs. What needs of yours are being met at a given moment? What needs are not being met? What needs of others are being met, not being met? And then the what could make life more wonderful means what do we want? What requests do we have to contribute to human needs being better met? So that's the simplicity of the process, what's alive in us, and what would make life more wonderful.
0: And so when you're going out and you're using this in the, in the case of a corporation, how, you would say the corporation has a need for
1: profits? We, we show that profits are not a need. A very important part of our training is to help people see a difference between needs and strategies. See, strategies are ways of getting needs met. So some people think that profits, financial gain, is a need. No, it's a, it's a strategy that might or might not meet certain needs. See,
0: what would be a need of a corporation?
1: Well, uh, the need of the people in the corporation the st- would probably, I hope, be the strongest need that human beings have, a need to contribute to life.
0: Right.
1: Some people would call this a need for meaning, some would call it a need for purpose but I call it a need to contribute to life to see that our efforts are really going to serving life making somebody's life more wonderful that's what all of the corporations I think say in their vision basically that they're trying to serve people but when you really look at their actions I think that they're getting needs mixed up with strategies and their real interest is in how to make profits why, why is that? What is well, because for 10,000 years we have been educated to live within domination cultures in which a few people benefit at the expense of many. So uh, people in the, the structures, they have been educated this way, they really uh, see that this is the world for those in power to get their needs met and to use others in the, in the service of their own needs.
0: Now, that trickles down into the rest of society where you, even in a a marriage, uh, each partner fears to be dominated by the other.
1: Yes. If you have uh, people educated in a domination structure, uh, much of the, uh, the, the definitions of what love means is all mixed up with domination.
0: Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yes. Uh, For example, uh, we often work with people uh, who are having trouble in their marriages. And we ask them first, what are your needs that are not getting met? Uh, One time a woman uh, said to her husband, well, my need for love isn't getting met. And he says, well, I love you. And she says, no, you don't. He says, yes, I do. I said, hold it. What What are you requesting of him? when you say that your need for love isn't getting met. What do you want him to do to better meet your need for love?" She she looked at him and said, Well, you know, and he says, No, I don't know. Well, she says, It's hard to say in so many words. And he said, If it's hard for you to say, can you see how hard it will be for me to do? So I said to her, So tell him concretely, what do you want him to do to meet your need for love? And then she looked at me and she says, it's embarrassing. I said, yes, it's often embarrassing to see the oppressive games we're playing in the service of getting certain needs met. So what do you want him to do to meet your need for love? She says, I want you to guess what I want before I even know what it is. And then I want you always to do it. You see, well, that's a very domination uh, kind of concept because uh, you play the game that if you really love me, you would know what I want and do it. So people don't usually say that out loud, but they keep that within because that's how you you, you oppress people within a domination culture. You try to use guilt by saying, if you love me, you would do this.
0: Why do we think that somebody else is responsible for our happiness? Because we all seem to grow up believing that. And it's so hard to stop blaming and saying somebody else caused no. our happiness or our un-
1: happiness. That's again because in a domination culture you want to use guilt as a tool for getting people to do what you want. Our training shows that there are certain strategies that are very destructive in trying to influence people. One is punishment, another is reward, another is guilt which we're talking about now, another is shame, And another are the concepts of duty and obligation. But let's look at guilt because it relates to this oppression of trying to communicate to other people that they're responsible for our feelings. See, if you want to manipulate children by guilt, for example, you have to teach them very young that they can make other people feel bad. So uh, a mother or father might say to the child, it hurts me when you don't clean up your room. And if the child has been educated to believe that you can make people feel as they do, then the child's going to feel guilty to see that his behavior creates such pain. In our training, we show people that it's very important to be conscious of what we are responsible for and what we're not responsible for. Because if you don't get that clear, then you get what in modern terminology is called a blurring of the boundaries or codependence, you see when you don't get these concepts of responsibility clarified. So we suggest that we are responsible for our intentions and our actions. How others interpret our actions or our intentions is what creates their feelings. And we can't be responsible for something over which we have no control. I can control my intentions, I can control my actions, I'm responsible. So I have the intention to express honestly to you something that you've done that is not in harmony with my needs. That's my intention. And I do it the best way I can. I say to you, I'm frustrated when you keep interrupting when I talk because I have a need to be understood and and, and, I, and be respected that isn't met. Now, you say, that hurts me when you say that. See? Now, what hurt you? It would hurt you if in... (coughs) I I say it it hurts
0: me because uh, I feel that I haven't figured out what you needed.
1: If you said that, I'm feeling hurt because I'm not clear. Notice you're saying I'm feeling hurt because I. You're taking responsibility. Uh So that would be in harmony with what we're showing people. But if when I said what I did, you took it as a criticism, you hear that you're being criticized and feel hurt. It wouldn't be my statement that hurt you. It would be how you received it. Right. You received it as a criticism. Right. So therefore, we are responsible for how we feel because how we feel depends on how we interpret things. Other people are responsible for their intentions and their actions, but not for how we interpret them and not therefore for how we feel.
0: So, so basically, we get clear ourselves, and we're confident of our needs and feelings and to go about getting these needs met. And then in the process of interacting with other people, we hold this clarity, and we can kind of like keep pulling them up, even if they start to say they're unworthy. It in They won't say it in words, but maybe through their actions.
1: Their well, in our training, we one of the things that people like most about our training is that it's utilization doesn't depend on the other person's cooperation so we can show people how to stay with the process that will end with everybody's needs getting met even if the other person doesn't have the skills to communicate in this way so for example and that what we were talking about earlier if i say to somebody i'm feeling frustrated when you start to talk before i finish because i have a real need for you know space to communicate and the other person gets hurt and says, that hurts me when you say that. I might say to the person, could you tell me what you heard me say? Yes, you said I was rude. Right. You see, okay, so now I can see that the problem wasn't what I said, it's how they took it. So I say, thank you. Why do I say thank you? I ask them to tell me what they heard, they did. See, if I said that isn't what I said, they'd hear right. it as an attack. So I say, thank you. I can see I didn't make myself clear. I was trying to communicate my feelings and needs, not criticize you for what you did. Let me try again. I'm feeling frustrated because my need for space to communicate doesn't get met. Can you tell me what you heard? I'm sorry. Before you apologize, could you tell me what you heard? See, to get another person who's not trained, to be conscious of what's alive in us. They've been trained to hear criticism, to make criticism. I'm not saying it's easy to pull their attention so they can hear what's alive in you. But you can do it. We teach people then how to help the other person to hear a difference between you criticizing them and you're simply expressing what's alive in you.
0: So that kind of answers a question I had about a nonviolent communication not being used to control or somebody or achieve a certain end even to to try to achieve uh, a connection with them so that they know what we're feeling it could be viewed by some as manipulation because you're trying to make them feel what you're feeling but it seems to me what you're saying is that other people can actually be taken to a place where they not only understand what you're feeling but they're actually having a greater repertoire of feelings themselves.
1: We help them to develop the repertoire because our training shows us how to hear feelings behind any message that comes at you. So even if the other person has almost zero consciousness of what's alive in them, no matter what they say, we're trained to sense what they might be feeling. And in this way, we can help them get more in touch with it. Now, we need to clear up one thing about the intention of nonviolent communication. As you suggested, it's very important that we not mix up the intention of creating the, a connection in which everybody's needs can get met. That's the intention of nonviolent communication.
0: It's not getting our way.
1: <laughs> it's not getting our way, exactly. It's not getting the other person to do what you want. But that's a very hard intention to get through to people who have been educated in a culture, who interpret that it is their objective to get the other person to do what you want. For example, many parents will say to me something like one did recently. She said, Marshall, how do I get my son to clean up his room? I said, is that your objective? She said, yes. I said, then he won't. Oh, she said, so I'm supposed to just let him do whatever he wants. And I have to do all the cleaning. See, she could only see two objectives either get him to do what she wants or she had to be a loser and not get her needs met I said I'd like you to see another possibility what we're saying is to create the quality of connection that will allow your needs to get met and your son's needs to get met but in order for that to happen you can't get addicted to the strategy of getting him to clean up his room he may very well end up cleaning up the room once he sees what your needs are and trust that you are equally concerned with his needs.
0: Maybe this process makes us get a better idea of who we are. We may come in thinking that we want something, but working with these connections with people, we may find as a result of listening to the feelings and needs of someone else, we may actually want something different, greater, better.
1: This is why differences and conflict are wonderful. If we go about it with certain consciousness, Yes, very often we come out with something far richer than we go in with in terms of various strategies that might be effective in meeting our needs. If what we go in with, we see it doesn't meet the other person's needs, through an exploration of then how can we find a way to get everybody's needs met, we often do come out with a much more creative resolution.
0: Why why are you so confident that everybody can get their needs met? Because I feel you're very optimistic. And you're very convinced that there are no differences that can't be resolved
1: many times people say yes how do you have this belief in the innate goodness of people and i say it has nothing to do with a a belief or a faith in my work i do a lot of conflict resolution and a lot of it is between people that hold deep pain between themselves i've mediated between uh, tribes in northern africa where a quarter of the population were killed in the year before I started to work with them. Mm. I mediate between teams of uh, groups of Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda and Burundi. I've worked in uh, Sierra Leone with uh, people who have had horrible things happen with the other pe- uh, people in the room with them. I've worked between Israelis and Palestinians. but Actually, some of the, <laughs> the most bitter conflicts I've been through are p- through uh, husbands and wives, children and... And their parents. Right. So then in answer to your question, uh, why do I have this, uh, this, uh, this trust that everybody's needs can get met? Because I find out that when I can get both sides hearing what the other side is needing, what needs of theirs, what human needs are not getting met, you see, and what pain do they feel as a result of that? When I can get both sides seeing that, getting rid of all enemy images so that nobody is saying the other side is wrong oppressive, stupid, anything that implies a criticism, when I can get both sides at that level, they see each other's unmet needs. They don't hear any criticism. I've yet to find that the conflict almost doesn't resolve itself. So the more I do this kind of work, the more I become convinced that the kind of conflicts that lead nations to war and tens of thousands of people to be killed Actually, I'm convinced that most school children could solve the conflict very quickly if you simply told them what the resources are and what the needs of both sides are,
0: you see. So it doesn't take a a PhD in psychology to to put this into action?
1: It takes somebody with a consciousness of human needs and an ability to translate moralistic judgments into needs. That's a, a core part of our training that all language that criticizes others is essentially a tragic expression of an unmet need.
0: Why is there such a tendency to criticize others to make ourselves look good?
1: Because we've been educated for 10,000 years according to the theologian Walter Wink in his book The Powers That Be. We have been educated for 10,000 years to maintain domination structures in which a few people dominate many and such structures require a language of domination a language in which people at the top who claim to be authorities know what's right, know what's wrong, know who's good, who's bad because those judgments are necessary to determine who deserves reward and who deserves punishment so we have been educated not to think of our human needs we have been educated to think in terms of moralistic judgments How do we undo that? How do we create a non So the way to undo this, we've got to be careful that the way to undo this is not to say we've got to get rid of this thinking. Because getting rid of something creates resistance. What we have to do is get conscious of what do we want to replace it with that will better serve life at less cost. So when we go about systems change in our organization, we're not out to destroy what is or to get rid of it. We are out to transform it to better serve life, you see. When we work with people taking drugs or alcohol, we're not trying, our objective is not to get them to stop taking the drugs or the alcohol. Our objectives are to find another way of meeting their needs that's more effective and less costly. And their body. And to the people around them and to the society. So. Our approach is never to get rid of something. That's what leads to violence, you see. If you set your objective of getting rid of something, killing it usually works.
0: Is, is that your definition of violence?
1: Well, we see violence at several levels. At the physical level, of course, I would call violence intentionally harming, physically harming another person. I would say psychological violence is in any way implying wrongness of another person. But we also have structural violence, Uh, by the way we have created laws that discriminate against certain people. I would call that another form of institutional violence. So I think there's these different levels of violence. They're all interrelated.
0: What about the institution of marriage in this society? Is there violence built into that institution?
1: Yes, I would say violence in this sense. uh,
0: Because these are two people that were in love. They decided to get married, and then later on...
1: And I'm saying very often uh, the way love, as I mentioned earlier, the way love is uh, defined, it does violence to both people. It almost makes them a slave to the other. For so example, if, if to be in love and to be married means that I'm responsible for the other person's happiness, now we get into this guilt game where if they're upset, I'm right. at fault. That makes the person you're the closest with soon about as much fun to be with as a prolonged dental appointment.
0: Uh, no, I, I agree with that part of it, you know, after the honeymoon's over, they say, but what about before the honeymoon even starts? Somebody, a man says, I'm going to take care of you and protect you, and, you know, he big brings you flowers and roses, and you just tend to have this knee-jerk reaction that he's making you happy.
1: Yes. Well, uh, why?
0: Well, <laughs> he is
1: probably meeting some of your needs by that, by the flowers, to meet a need to be cared for. That part is beautiful when people do things to contribute to each other's needs being fulfilled. The problem is with the training we get about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. You see, in a domination culture, women are trained that a loving woman has no needs. She sacrifices her needs for her family, for her man. So the loving wife is basically this martyr who has no needs herself but to do for others. A man gets a similar training but a little different wrinkle. And in, in the ma- male case, it's Brave men have no needs. They're willing to even sacrifice their life in the service of the king. Notice in both cases, human needs are not nice. They're weak, dependent, selfish, needy, weak, sick. So you've got to uh, maintain a domination culture. You've got to educate people to be disconnected from their needs and to learn all these roles that this is what a man should do and what a woman should do, which is a sure way to make sure that you can't really enjoy each other.
0: So the thing is to get the stigma out of need, if we can accept that needs are good. Maybe we could say a saint has a great need to be one with God?
1: I would say that not only a saint, but if it's a need as we define needs, all human beings have it. All human beings have the same needs.
0: All human beings?
1: All human beings have the same needs. The differences are in the strategies for meeting needs, you see. All human beings have a need for nourishment, physical nourishment for their bodies, food, but of course, what is the strategy for meeting that? In some countries, uh, they eat quite different foods to meet that need. So strategies differ from, you know, culture to culture, but all human beings have the same needs, but we don't get educated to express these needs because people do not make good slaves when they're in touch with their needs. So if you want to educate a a vast majority of the public to be nice, dead people so that they'll fit into corporate structures and uh, do life-alienated work, you've got to educate them not to be in touch with needs. You've got to educate them to work for rewards in the form of approval or money or to be afraid of punishment that you'll get fired. Uh, So you don't educate them to be needs. To be educated in terms of needs is a revolutionary act. What does the ideal society look like you? Can you describe what that would be? First of all, the ideal society, uh, no one would do things for rewards or to avoid punishment because you wouldn't have rewards or punishment. You see, you would have life-serving missions for organizations. They would see that their objectives are to enrich the needs, enrich the lives of people. So, second characteristic I've already mentioned. Power with tactics would be used, not power over tactics. Power with tactics are punishment, reward, guilt, shame, duty, obligation. Power with requires communication so that people can see how their actions are in fact nourishing life. And so it's gratitude, sincere gratitude that people work for, not approval you see, but to see that how their actions are enriching life. And third, in the kind of what I call life-serving organizations, the role of authority is radically different than in the institutions we're familiar with. Authority in life-serving organization is a servant. They serve the workers. They don't control them, they serve them. If they have expertise, it's in this to serve the workers so that the workers can serve the life-serving mission. So these are a few characteristics of a life-serving organization, whether that be a family, a school, a, a corporation, or a government.
0: Do you think as a person practices nonviolent communication, their needs change? You
1: no, know, you see, our needs never change. Our needs are always the same, the same as all other people in the world. What we might change is different ways of meeting the needs. But the needs don't change.
0: What, what is that, basically, the needs?
1: The needs? It's life seeking fulfillment within each one of us. Trees have needs. Bees have needs. Humans have needs. All living phenomena have needs. It's life seeking expression.
0: So they're seeking greater happiness.
1: They're seeking but... it, fulfillment. Fulfillment. The happiness comes as a result of the fulfillment. Uh, we're not after the happiness. Uh, life is not to live happily ever after. It's to laugh all our laughter and cry all our tears. Life at times requires sadness. Needs don't get met. Life and death go together, you see. Life is a process. It's ever-changing.
0: When needs don't get met, you'd say that is, that the the tears and the sorrow is beckoning a new chapter?
1: I would say that the pain is nature's way of mobilizing us to, to better meet our needs the sorrow says a need of mine isn't getting met. It mobilizes me to do something about it.
0: And so we want to tune into that. We want to live that to make our life.
1: We want to tune into our sorrow. We want to turn into our joy. We want to celebrate when our needs do get met. And we want to mourn when they don't get met. You know, we probably wouldn't have the same society. We might not have factories. We wouldn't have cars. We wouldn't have a lot of things that in the culture Well, certainly, we wouldn't have consumerism mixed up as a human need. I think we would have factories that would create life-serving things, like uh, clothes and uh, other things that serve life. I think they would be much more uh, local. Uh, I don't think they would be uh, controlled by international forces.
0: Why do people like to have things? What is consumerism?
1: They're educated. If you read the book by Michael Lerner, Spirit Matters. I think he does a good job in that book of explaining what he calls misrepresentation of needs. Our domination cultures want to educate people so they get needs mixed up. For example, they educate you to think you need approval. You see, we don't need approval. You then we, you
0: get the big car and exactly. the diamonds. We think
1: we need to get this approval from others by how we can consume what we own. But that need for approval is really not a human need. If we really wipe away the false education, here's what it is. We all have a need to contribute to life. But how do I know whether I've contributed to your life unless I receive some sincere gratitude? So if you tell me how a meal I cooked really enriched your life, it's not that I did it for the gratitude, but the gratitude gives me confirmation that my need to contribute to your life was met. So that gets all distorted in a domination culture, and we educate people to think that they need the approval.
0: And so the the, the cars and the things become symbols of approval being given? Oh, yes,
1: yes, especially if you were raised in Detroit, Michigan like I was. (laughs) When I went to my 10th high school reunion, the first question everybody asked everybody was, what car are you driving? You see that? That was the determiner of how you've made it in life, what size car you can drive. Mm -hmm. But that's a distortion, that's a distortion of this need to contribute to life with this thinking that we need approval.
0: Do you think there's any basic difference between the needs of men and women and that that, if there is a basic difference that that can be the quote-unquote eternal conflict?
1: Well, as I've said, uh, I think all human beings have the same needs. I think men and women have the same needs. Certainly, cultures uh, teach men and uh, women different ways of getting needs met. And they also teach them it's okay to have some needs if you're a man but not others. And maybe women get different training. But both men and women have the same needs.
0: I'm, I'm thinking of um, beings who talk about enlightenment and liberation, saying that any qualification that you might have is not who you are. You're obviously not the person... Uh, defined by the car you drive, or even the person defined by the body that you have. As you learned when you were young, people were not liking you for the color of your skin, or religion. And yet it can go even farther that we have no qualification whatsoever, including being a man or a woman. And a very uh, an enlightened person that I met, Sean Klein, said that as long as there's a man and as long as there's a woman, there can never be understanding.
1: Ask me whether I'm a man or a woman.
0: Are you a man or a woman?
1: Some of the above, none of the above. All of the above and more, of course.
0: It, it sounds like you're describing
1: sainthood. No, I'm just really describing what I think exists. I don't think any label using the verb to be dehumanizes people. Anytime you think of yourself, what you are, or what somebody else is, I think you lose the beauty and the awe and the wonder of this living phenomena. So, uh, one of the things when we work with parents, we show them that the worst thing you can do is see these younger people you're living with as a child. The very label child keeps you from seeing the right. full humanness of this person.
0: Right. Um, but I, I still feel that's, that's a quality of a liberated human being sainthood. You, you, you always say you don't have to be a saint to practice nonviolent communication but I see when I read about it and watch the results, you show people how easy it is to achieve virtue that has been considered exclusive for the very elite.
1: But I see whole cultures that live this way. then they're all saints by that definition. Read Mark, read uh, Ruth Benedict's research. There's whole tribes, cultures in the world. They don't teach their people to think of what people are. They don't teach people to label and categorize. Such tribes or cultures have almost no violence.
0: Do, do they have enough spiritual power to protect themselves? Because you talk about the protective use of force, also in your teaching. Will Will these Will these um, societies survive?
1: That's one of the tragedies that they don't have the weapons. I think they have the the spirituality that contributes to survival, but. Uh, other things don't, uh, they don't have. But, I wor- I,
0: but that, that, that shouldn't be a problem, though, with your work. You don't use weapons.
1: No, but if people do, that are you're surrounded by, uh, unless you get learned some ways of dealing with them, uh, then you may not survive. So that's one of the hardest challenges we have when we're called upon by such cultures to help them. Uh, for example, I was asked to work with some people from a tribe in Malaysia, uh, the, my translator before the day began we had a very interesting conversation about language because mm-hmm. he said to me you know Marshall if you use the verb to be today that will be very hard for me to translate because we don't have it in our language and I thought about that for a moment. You it's know. the first
0: verb we learn to conjugate when we
1: You hear good boy, bad boy, that's a right answer, that's a wrong answer so for me to think for a moment I said to him well how can I communicate today if I can't label and categorize people? What if I want to say to somebody you're selfish? And he said, Marshall, we just don't think that way. That'll be a real challenge for me. And I said, well, what would you do then if I did call somebody selfish? Well, he said, in our language, Marshall, I would translate it this way. I would say Marshall says he sees you taking care of your own needs, but not the needs of others. He would like you to take care of their needs too. And I sat there thinking to myself, this is exactly what I teach people. That's exactly the language of nonviolent communication. So then the sad question is, why was I asked to work with them if they do naturally what I teach people around the world to do? The sad reason for that was that this tribe had been living peacefully in the middle of the jungle for several generations, but they were living in, amongst trees that have great value in the outside world. So logging interests were destroying their habitat. And there, one senator for 60,000 people uh, in the Malaysian government uh, heard of work we were doing in Malaysia, and he asked if I would work with their people to show them how they might uh, communicate with these people around them that are coming in now with this different way of thinking. They think they have a right to this because they paid money for it. They think they have a right to use weapons to clear them off the land. So it's a real challenge to support these people in knowing how to survive in the face of that kind of oppression.
0: That they're protecting the ecosystem that we need, the rainforest. I mean, I know you're not talking about the rainforest, but I would imagine the same would be true of tribes living in the rainforest, and we need that air.
1: So there's all kinds of reasons for us to uh, help such people learn how to protect themselves and the environment in the face of these uh, forces that are trying to take it away from them.
0: So it becomes imperative that we figure out what consumerism is, that it's that it's not really a
1: need. Yes, uh, no, consumerism is not a need. We need food, we need food, we need shelter, we need. Uh, but we don't need uh, cars. There, but they can be a helpful strategy if we can find a way to meet what they the need for mobility, which the cars need. If we can find, and we have technology which could uh, give us that better, you know, this mobility without destroying the environment. And, and we're, we need to get about developing transportation that can meet our need for mobility without destroying the planet.
0: What, do you have any um, visions or even fantasies because of the cultures that you've seen to bring them to, to this culture, knowledge of what they're doing?
1: Well, yes, I have studied uh, Ruth Benedict and Margaret Mead and other anthropologists to uh, see how cultures have existed in the past, have met their needs, uh, especially the ones that, at least from anthropological evidence, seem not to have had much violence. I've tried to learn from them what we can bring and learn in our culture.
0: I mean um, that we should have more shows about these people's lives going in, documentaries maybe,
1: Oh, I think we need to learn from them, yes, very much so. I think we need to learn from people like William Urey and his book, The Third Side, who's gone back and studied such cultures for thousands of years and seen, uh, he's seen cultures that didn't have violence. We need to see, have him and others like him share their knowledge and show us what we can learn from those cultures to bring us back to the state where people can get their needs met without violence
0: can consumerism be even something like fishing for compliments like you were saying uh, when a little girl is judged oh, you're such a sweet little girl that that that's actually
1: a disservice to her compliments and praise uh, i think are equally violent as negative statements like insults because notice both of them are using the same language form they are both using categories we're putting people in a category when we say you're stupid idiot or when we say you're a brilliant person we're both we're dehumanizing the person in both of them so rather than giving a compliment or praise our training shows that people will get much more out of your sincere gratitude if that's what you're trying to do is give a sincere gratitude don't tell people what they are tell people specifically what they've done that enriches your life express how you feel about that and what needs were met you'll see that people learn more from that than they do from praise or compliments. Right. But you see, praise and compliments are given for the motive of reward, to manipulate. And approval. Approval the same way. It can be used for the purpose of manipulation. Right. That's an example of what you just said about the gratitude, gratitude? The gratitude. For example, let's say that I'm a teacher and a student has uh, done a paper, uh, just written a paper, if I say good paper, that's a very good paper, you're a good writer. That has almost first, almost zero information value in terms of learning. Mm-hmm. But if I say the number of facts that you quoted in this paragraph, I felt very delighted with that because it really fulfilled my need for greater clarity about this subject. I've given the student much clearer idea of how I benefited by this performance. That's what we call sincere gratitude. It's based on needs that were met. That's much more honest, and it's much more supportive of the learning of a student, for example. And
0: and they'll have greater fulfillment in their life purpose.
1: They'll see how their behavior has contributed to somebody's well-being. In this case, by putting this number of facts in, in the report, it contributed to somebody's clarity about the subject matter. That's far more valuable information than the the judgment, good paper.
0: So if you say good paper, you kind of keep the person up in their head, and they live life waiting for one compliment after another and trying to avoid the blame.
1: And And you perpetuate a domination culture because you have educated them that the main job is to do what authority thinks is right.
0: Right. But I'm also thinking the next step, too, we can get kind of addicted To the compliments and then that approval and then that need for the cars and all of the things that are destroying the environment exactly
1: that's and it's the purpose of schools is to educate students to be nice dead people right because that's what industry requires nice dead people who will do work without questioning whether it serves life Uh, they'll do it just to get the boss's approval I work with managers who tell me that they have just been in other training that taught them to make praise and compliments to employees daily, showing that the production goes up if you give praise and compliments. Teachers have been told the same thing. Praise and compliments will increase students' performance. I tell both teachers and managers that I've seen that research, and it does work for a very short time until people see the manipulation in it. And then it no longer increases production, But what's worse, it destroys the beauty of gratitude. Now you can't even be sure when somebody is giving some gratitude whether it's sincere or whether the person is using it as a device to get you to do what they want.
0: Right. You pick up on the manipulation and you resent it.
1: And this is what our schools do, because it's their job to train people to work within structures in which they'll work for. Praise, approval, salaries. And they won't look at whether what they're doing is polluting the environment, whether it is destroying the hiring, the, the work uh, experiences in other cultures, exploiting other cultures. Right. Oh. People have been educated to go in and put in your eight hours a day working for the salary and for the approval.
0: Is nonviolent education important to teach in schools, refugee camps, or corporations, or all of them?
1: Well, we, we, call life, we call them life-serving educational schools, and we have right now about a thousand of them in Israel. Uh, we have some in Palestine. Uh, I've written a book called Life-Serving Education, in which I outline what these schools are like and how different they are from the usual public schools. We have a few in the United States. We have uh, some in Italy and some in Serbia, Sweden. Uh, so, yes. Uh, The education is quite different. First of all, in uh, life-serving education, the teachers and the students work as partners. The the teachers don't tell students what they have to do, they assist the students to identify their own objectives. Students don't work for grades, they don't work for approval, having picked objectives that they see will enrich their lives, they work to serve their lives. we structure the school so that it's not a competitive arena, it's an interdependent community so that all of the students contribute to one another's well-being, learning. If a student has just learned something and some other student wants to learn it, instead of competing on a test where the one who's learned it is going to get a higher grade, the one who has already learned it turns around and teaches the other. So that everybody is both a teacher and a student.
0: Wow. I'd like to ask you a few questions about enlightened people, and I realize even to use the word enlightened by how you define it is is in itself violent. So let's say some people I've run across who've had almost a quantum shift, even in their physiology and their whole attitude and the way they look at life. at least I feel that's serving my need better to, to relate to you the excitement I yes. have about individuals who are developing.
1: I like well, that way of describing them. You're telling me that there are certain people who the way they think, communicate, stand, sit, whatever, do it in a way that you're pleased with, you're excited about, it meets some basic needs of yours. Right. So you're not saying they're enlightened you're describing what goes on in you when you're with those people.
0: Right, and I thank you for helping me with that clarity. In any case, one individual's name, uh, her name is Byron Katie, and she felt at about 43 years old she had, uh, she calls it, uh, she got some clarity, is how she said. And then she found that there was a natural invitation to help others in her life. And she, like you, uh, doesn't shy away from difficult situations but rather feels the real, I guess, the need of hers to go in and, and share what she has. She said that we would all stop hating if we knew how. And she says, hate is nothing more than peace, than pure innocence. And that innocence can be painful. She goes on, wouldn't you stop if you knew how? And she talks about investigating our thinking. And she says, this investigation leads to love. She says, uh, open to love, the worst that could happen is love. And I feel in in your work, I I see this a lot. The end result of doing these steps, observation instead of evaluation, being in touch with feelings, understanding our needs, making requests for our life to be better, ends in in real love. Although there's a knee-jerk reaction against it, that somehow by being vulnerable, we may um, be, be wimps or run over by people, we find that that's actually not the case. In, in conclusion, she goes that attachment to uninvestigated thought is innocence. So she talks about the importance of looking at the thoughts that we have and saying that hate is nothing more than pure innocence. And I'd like to know if you can sort of relate this to how you view anger which is an intense emotion that makes so many of us unhappy.
1: Our approach to it, I think, has some parallels to what you've described. We say that anger is a result of thinking, certain kind of thinking, thinking that implies wrongness. So we get angry because we pass judgment on the other person. So if I'm driving and somebody's driving in a way I don't like, And I think, what's wrong with that idiot? Don't they know any better than that? It's not that person's driving that makes me angry. It's that I'm judging them as wrong and idiot. I'm thinking they don't have any right to drive that way. They should be punished. They they deserve to suffer. It's that kind of thinking that implies wrongness and deserving of suffering. And the word should, all of those combined together, is what creates anger. So... We show people that if you are angry, first of all, uh, the worst thing I can think of is thinking that there's something wrong with you for being angry. Let's not think there's anything wrong with anger. Next, we'd say what I just did to you. We help people to see that their anger is created by their thinking. Thinking that implies wrongness, that the person deserves to be punished for what they're doing. Next, we teach people, don't judge yourself for thinking that way. Don't think there's something wrong for thinking that way. It'll keep the process going. The next step we teach people is... Excuse
0: me, that's why you say you don't have to be a saint to do this process, that it's okay if you're angry. Just give yourself some empathy and...
1: It's okay to be angry. How could you help it be angry? If you've been educated in the United States, you're going to spend a good deal of your life being angry, either at others or at yourself, which takes the form of depression, guilt, and shame. But it's the same thinking that causes depression, guilt, and shame that causes anger. It's just where it's directed. If it's directed outward, we're angry. If we direct it toward ourselves, we're depressed, guilty, and shame.
0: Because we're punishing ourselves?
1: Because we think that what we did was wrong. We think it was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. If you think that way about yourself, you'll feel depressed, guilt, and shame. But in a domination culture, you, you won't be educated to think that you feel that way. Because you've been educated, you think that there's, you're mentally ill. So we have this destructive metaphor of mental illness, you see. Well, a mental illness is not... It's, you've just taught people to think in a way that makes them miserable. So, back to your question of anger, we teach people how to be conscious of the thinking that makes you angry, just to see it, just to see it. It's not what the other person did. If people follow me in my work, they'd see that it's never what other people do that make you angry. I I was working with some people in uh, Rwanda, and one of the Rwandan women had her whole family killed. I know this woman very well. She's never been angry. She has strong feelings, but not anger. Other people in her tribe are furious with her because she's not angry at the other side, you see. So it's not what others do that make you angry. It's your thinking. She doesn't think in the way that makes her angry. Her, Her thinking leads her to use enormous energy now to try to prevent this ever happening to somebody else. If we're angry, the thinking that leads to it leads us to want vengeance and to hurt the other side. So the next step we teach people after they've identified the thinking that creates their anger. We teach them to look at the need that is being expressed through the judgmental thinking. See, we show people that all judgmental thinking is a tragic expression of a need. So we say to people, when you're angry, be conscious of the thinking that makes you that way. Next, connect with the need that's being lost through all of this judgmental thinking. As soon as they get in touch with that need, they find that they're no longer angry.
0: So, judgmental thinking blocks us from feeling our needs, or being, feeling or feeling anything it.
1: except the anger? It, it blocks us from being conscious of what need of ours isn't getting met. Our thinking is enemy image. We're thinking of the wrongness of the other person. We're not thinking of what need of ours is not getting met. When we're not in touch with our needs, we're much less likely to get our needs met. At the moment we get in touch with our needs, we cannot be angry. We'll feel scared powerless hurt frustrated sad but those are feelings that nature put in us to mobilize us to get our needs met not right. to punish others
0: now when I think about my own experience in uh, a work okay yeah I just like to share my personal experience um, we were talking about Bar- Byron Katie's work, sh- saying that we would all stop hating if we knew how and it seems, you've just described to me this process of anger. Do you have any final things to say about uh, her comment that hate is nothing more than pure innocence? And that innocence can be painful?
1: I guess I'm not clear enough about what she means by that to respond to it.
0: To spontaneously relate it. The way, the way I see it is that um, when someone is, is angry, as, as you described, and they're out of touch with their feelings and their needs aren't being met, Uh, They haven't really investigated into themselves. However, I know from Byron Katie's work, she has something very simple in mind, that if you're hating someone, really it's occupying your attention so much, so you're not self-realized, you're that person realized, and you can shift it by taking a look at that discomfort. It's a very simple shift that she talks about. And, and I can see and appreciate, but I personally had an experience in a workshop of yours, if you didn't conduct it, but it was somebody that you trained, uh, while I was expressing my feelings to my intimate partner. And there was a moment where I felt heard and something happened in the whole room. And uh, I was wondering if you have any comments to make about this. Do we have a human need to be heard
1: well, we, by others? Uh, we, we call this need by many things, a need to be heard. But the, technically, I would say it's a need for empathy, empathic connection, which means being heard in a special way, not intellectually understood, right. but you feel a presence, you feel the presence of somebody else to what's alive in you. You don't feel that they're evaluating it, analyzing it. They're just there with you in that feeling. And yes, that happens today in the training we did here, where I'm at at the moment. We probably had uh, 15 people that had that transformative experience more than one time during the day. Right. When they got in touch with things very powerful in them, and one or more, sometimes a whole group, was just fully present to that. Right it's a very precious experience it's um, the Christians say when two or more are gathered in my name there I am also you see it's a it's a very spiritual experience it's palatable. It's palatable. to have this quality where we don't allow any analysis to get in there just presence right. being there the, the uh, Israeli philosopher and uh, psychotherapist Martin Buber says that uh, this is the most precious gift one human being can give to another that presence, that just being with not intellectually understanding, not judging, analyzing, classifying, not trying to help but just being there, the most precious gift one human being can give to another
0: in my case it was it was an intimacy a profound intimacy and yet there was a group and you, you would usually think in a group You can't feel that intimate and so I guess that's what I want to kind of explore a little more deeply with you because what is it about a society or a group that can accomplish something that even two loving partners can't?
1: Well I think it is a very powerful experience when a whole 5, 10, 15, 20, however many people can really be fully present at the same time to something that somebody's experiencing and it's It's a very powerful, very beautiful experience.
0: I feel almost like if I meet these people in the future, you know, we'll always have shared something, some some kind of a, a bond. Now, on the other hand, nobody's responsible for your happiness. So in theory, I should be able to go up into the mountains and be a yogi in the cave and accomplish that.
1: Well, I think you can accomplish other things that meet other needs by being alone. Uh, you can learn to give this quality of empathy to yourself.
0: Right. Uh,
1: We teach people how to do it, because when you don't have the wonderful resource of others who know how to listen in this way, how to give it to yourself.
0: So um, nonviolent communication teaches how to listen to ourselves.
1: Especially when we need it the most. For example, when we have just messed something up and we're really uh, blasting ourselves using the old-style thinking, thinking, how could I have been so dumb That's when we really need this quality of empathy for what's going on in us. So we teach people at that point how to give this empathy to themselves if they're not fortunate enough to have others around them who can assist them.
0: Do you think nonviolent communication is like meditation for the masses, for the society?
1: Well, I've never thought of it that way. I I have said that it does involve meditation at certain points for example when people are angry and we say to people you got to stop and see this thinking that's making you angry well that's essentially a part of some people's approach to meditation is just to become highly conscious of what you're thinking at any given moment so we incorporate that in our training but i've never thought of our training as meditation for the masses i would say (laughs) it's a, a way of being conscious and uh, of how you choose to relate to other human beings, and not only to be conscious of that, but having skills for manifesting it, even when other people do not have the skills, and even when you're within structures that are not facilitating human encounters, that are doing quite the opposite. They are facilitating competition, domination, violence.
0: I guess I'm just eager to see that that the world is living more harmoniously and that consumerism is better understood as as not being uh, successful. I mean, we're a society of, of rich and oftentimes very unhappy people.
1: Yes, consumerism is not a need, as we've said a couple of times already and to be thinking that that's where our happiness is, is to uh, what we can buy and consume. It's tragic for everybody, the environment, for the other cultures that we're ripping off while we play that consumer game. Uh, Yes, we need to show people what is a fun game. Not say that consumerism is bad, we need to show them something that's more wonderful and less costly, and that's not hard to do.
0: Can, can you talk briefly about the stages of emotional liberation?
1: I'm not too sure what you mean by that.
0: Oh, you were you were speaking in your book about well, I was sort of sensitive to the the, the stage of the obnoxious part where you say you're not responsible for someone else's happiness.
1: Yes, uh, we as I've mentioned to you already we use human feelings. Uh, to induce guilt. So it's really a form of violence to say to somebody, it hurts me when you say that. If they believe it and then they feel guilty and do whatever I want now, it's a form of violence. So we get a lot of people in our training who've been educated that way. All they have to do is see somebody feeling hurt or upset with them and right away, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll change. Now when people start to wake up and they see how much they've been tyrannized by feelings, Until we can show them the approach that we advocate, they often go through a phase that I call obnoxious. So now when somebody says, you know, that hurts my feelings, now they say, that's your problem. I'm not responsible for your feelings. Don't play your guilt games with me, you see. Well, we try to show people a third level. We hope we can get them past that. (laughs) We try to show them that rebellion is just as much uh, being dominated as uh, submission, so to to uh, have to rebel against the f- feelings, say I'm not responsible. you're still giving the other person power over you. Submission and rebellion are the same game. So we oh, should, when you
0: say I'm not responsible for your feelings you that person it? has powerful yes, power over you if
1: you were denying it that takes energy to have to protect ourselves against it. Right. So whether we agree with it or oppose it, we're still caught up in that energy. Right. So our approach says, show an empathic connection with the pain this poor person is experiencing. Say, so you're feeling hurt because your need for so-and-so isn't getting met. See, We don't say you're feeling hurt because of what I did. We show a respectful understanding for the feelings and the needs that are not getting met. Definitely, the development of virtue. This uh, business of submission and rebellion, in my book I give an example of my oldest son, the first day he came back from a public school he was 12 years old at the time he had gone to another school for six years that i had trained the teachers in and uh, the teachers uh, teachers quite a different way of relating to students than in the public school that he went to so he came back the first day and i said how was the new school rick he said it was okay dad but boy some of those teachers i said what happened he said, Dad, I wasn't halfway in the school, really, I was halfway in the front door, and some man teacher comes running over to me and says, My, my, look at the little girl. What the teacher was reacting to is that my son had very long hair, you see. Well, in a domination school, of course, right away, the teachers want the students to know there's a right way and a wrong way, and we, the teachers, are here to show you what's right and to use methods such as punishment, reward, guilt, shame, and so forth. So I thought to myself, that's a wonderful way to welcome a child to a school. He's halfway through the door. So I said to my son, what did you do? He said, I remember what you said, Dad, that in that kind of structure, never give him the power to make me submit or rebel. See, very important, not to play the game. Yeah. I said, hey man, you remembered that? That thrills me. What did you do then? I asked, you said, I tried to do what you said, Dad, Even when a person's treating you that way, try to hear what they're feeling and needing. I said, you remembered to do that? Yeah. I said, what did you hear? He said, it's pretty obvious, Dad. He seemed irritated, wanted me to cut my hair. I said, how'd that leave you feeling? He said, Dad, I felt sad for the man. He was bald and seemed to have a problem about hair. So
0: you saw your son had developed empathy.
1: Yes, and awareness that even when you're in a domination structure, don't play the game. So not right. don't, don't submit or rebel. When you're really in touch with your own values, you play by your own story, even when you're in the it, surrounded by a domination culture. That is so encouraging. So what would be his own story in that culture, in the culture, but how does he then deal with that? And how do you create your own story out of a, in a world that's, allowing us to. Here in this case, even with an authority who is brutalizing in the case of trying to induce shame and so right. forth, my son is still living by the story that this is a human being that has feelings and needs. He's not seeing this person as an authority, a teacher, he's seeing him as a human being. He's doing what Etty Hillison did in her uh, in her diary that she wrote from a concentration camp, uh, talking about how this Nazi guard was brutalizing her and others. But within the midst of that, she tried to understand what kind of pain this man must have been going through when he did that to us. So even though the structure is is one where the, the guard is brutalizing people with weapons, she's living in a different world. Uh, she's living in the world that Rumi talks about. There's a place beyond rightness and wrongness. I'll meet you there. So you can live in that world, no matter what structure you're in.
0: I remember that part in your book, quoting that at the beginning of the book. She also said she was never afraid because she had that ability.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Victor Frankel, in his writings, he spent four years in a concentration camp. In his book, uh, The Birth, uh, no, in his book, uh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, he says the people who survived. Were those who could get their need for meaning met, even in that structure. So, right. uh, Eddie Hillison is a good example of somebody who had meaning could find meaning because she had her own spirituality clearly defined, and then even within that structure, she lived in harmony with
0: it. You know, I'm I'm really honored to know you and the work that you do because I feel that you are allowing those those experiences. those people who've been able to achieve this kind of compassion you're breaking it down so it can be better understood and practiced by others i I can't thank you enough
1: i love that gratitude if i can do that then i'm very satisfied to take the wisdom these people had and pass it on if i can do that i'm very pleased
0: well i definitely feel you're doing it and i thank you so much for joining us today thank you you know, you said you've worked with the Palestinians and the Israelis.
1: So why is there still trouble over there? Oh well. <laughs> well, of course, the work I'm doing there, uh, I started in 1988. I found a team of Palestinians and a team of Israelis that I felt sh- we shared the same perspectives, and I brought the, that both teams to Switzerland for so we could intensively work together and uh, develop a team that could work together. So we've been working together for about 12 years. No, we haven't solved the problem in the Middle East, the violence, but uh, we do have a thousand schools in Israel now functioning in harmony with our principles. So if we look 30 years into the future, I think our work, I would hope that it would make a big uh, contribution. Uh, In addition to that, I've worked with the police. Uh, We've uh, worked with uh, all the doctors in refugee camps in Palestine. So, no, we haven't solved all of the the, the violence there yet, but we're making contributions to the society. And just today, in fact, this lunch I had uh, with a woman who has access to uh, Shimon Peres, and he's got a copy of my book on his desk, and she has access to him, and now we're going to be talking about concretely what we can do now at the political level to get them to start thinking and communicating differently. So you never know. But don't, don't both sides have the same need? Don't they both want the same piece of land? I mean, how do you don't resolve this, this how you needs. They both have the same needs. There's no question about it. But the, the, the same piece of land is not a need. That's a strategy, you see. Uh, so that's why, uh, yes, if you think, how can that be solved? It can't be. But if you say, if you do what I do when I do mediation, I don't even talk about how to divide up the land until there's a connection, a connection at the need level, to get both sides to see that they have the same need. Now, they'll start wanting now to justify why they have the right to the land. And I, in my mediations, I would say, but what are our needs? Let's look at the needs, you see. Uh, you know, that's been argued for how many centuries? We're not going to solve it you know, who has the right on that basis. But if we can get both of you clear what your needs are, we can meet everybody's needs. Uh, but when you look at the what we call these communications that they have, it, it's not a... I've been to one of those uh, organized by the Swedish government, that the Swedish service service got in an island. Uh, they got some top people from Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Jordan, and they asked me to help in this. But they did it like most of these communications are done. Uh, You could see ahead of time nobody's going to change anything. Therefore, the press, they're they're not really human interactions. Uh, In fact, they're usually not even looking at each other when the other person's talking. They're off with their own people, what they're going to say back. They're not even listening. So it's not a kind of communication. Like the Norwegian guy that grabbed the, the Israeli and the Palestinian and brought them into his house for a weekend got further Than with all the years of these kind of negotiations. So what I would do is get, and they're trying to see in Colombia right now, my colleague who's here from Colombia right now, the president knows of our work, the top senators in the peace thing, they would like us to be in a room with the leaders from all sides, not with the usual kind of communication, but with my help to connect at the need level to see each other as human beings get rid of all this rhetoric what what would you do then
0: take because there's a certain diplomatic protocol um and i know you've
1: you would escape it i'm saying they can do that if they want but if they really want my help i would say let's just get into a room and let me do what i did with these uh uh, chiefs in uh, nigeria see one quarter of the population killed in one year a christian tribe and a muslim tribe i start with i'd like to hear from either side whose whose needs are not being met in this conflict a christian uh, chief screams across the table you people are murderers they scream back you've been dominating us for 80 years we're not going to tolerate it you see i ask for needs they're giving me enemy images right my job is to translate these judgments into needs. So I said to the chief who screamed murderer, Chief, are you saying that your need for safety isn't met at the moment and you want some agreement that no matter what the conflict, no violence would be used? He thought for a minute. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well,
0: (laughs) that's exactly what he
1: wanted to say, but he didn't have need language. He could only call them names. So I said, would a chief on this side please say back what his needs are? chief on the other side screams then why did you kill my son i said chief we'll get to that in a moment but would you please just first tell me what his needs are he couldn't i had to repeat the needs i had to repeat them three times finally he hears it right then i translate his judgments into a need i get this side to hear it just to get that far took about an hour because they kept screaming at each other But after one hour of my just translating judgments into needs, one of the chiefs that hadn't spoken uh, jumped up and looked at me and said,
0: (laughs) because
1: they spoke Hausa, a language I don't speak. So I had to wait for my translator. I thought I had stepped on a cultural moray or something. But when I heard the message, I loved it. The translator said, the chief says we can't learn this in one day to communicate this way. If we know how to communicate this way, we don't have to kill each other, you see. So it took people in a totally different culture about an hour to see that if you can just say what your needs are, get rid of these enemy images, we can resolve the conflicts. So, yes, in Israel and Palestine, the big problem would be, you see, it took my colleague six months to get both chiefs into that room. And not both chiefs, there was about 12 yeah. on each side. 12, it, you know, he, six months he went back and forth to both sides using our training to empathize with the fears that kept them.